Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hey everyone, welcome to season three of Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. This is a special two-part episode with Michael Pettis. I'm Cardiff Garcia. On the show today, my colleague Matt Klein and I speak with Michael Pettis, finance professor at Peking University and author of The Great Rebalancing, Trade, Conflict, and the Perilous Road Ahead for the world economy. This book was published in 2015, but it has a special relevance now, given that the politics of trade has been so prominent this year. In part one, we go through the intellectual framework that Michael introduces in his book, and then we talk about how it applies to current events in Europe, China, and the U.S. And in part two, which will release on Monday, we exclusively focus on the Chinese economy. Now, a bit of a warning. In the first half hour of this podcast, we talk about the mechanics of how countries run trade surpluses, the way, for instance, that China and Germany do. In other words, these are countries whose businesses and households export more than they import. And we talk about the effects of these countries on countries that run trade deficits, like the United States. This part of the conversation is somewhat technical, and it does help a bit if you have a background in international finance or economics. But... After that, things do loosen up a bit as we start talking about current events in Europe, China, and the politics of trade. Joining me for this episode is co-host, my Alphaville colleague, Matt Klein. Matt, hello. Thanks for having me, Carter. Uh, Matt, I'm glad you're here, but I'm actually going to have to ask you to sit tight for like 20 or 30 minutes. Are you going to do that? I guess. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so here's what's going to happen. Michael and I are going to talk about the macroeconomic framework that he introduces in The Great Rebalancing. Uh, Matt, you're going to come back into the conversation when we uh, start talking about current events. Cool? Sounds good. All right. We'll talk to you in a bit. And joining us in the studio is Michael Pettis. Michael, welcome. Thanks very much. Michael, you just got off a 20-something hour flight from Beijing. Is that right? 13 hours, but it feels like 13-hour flight from Beijing. I hope you're up for this. I'm sure. Okay, good. So, Here's where I want to start, and I'm taking a bit of a risk here that all of our listeners are going to flee because we need to begin with accounting identities, okay, and why they matter so much to the framework that you talk about in The Great Rebalancing. So let's start here. When a country runs a current account surplus, at its most basic level, what exactly does that mean? There are two ways of looking at it. Um, One way is to look at it from the income side, and uh, a country's GDP is defined, this isn't a closed system, is defined as a total consumption plus savings. From the other side, from the supply side, it's defined as uh, consumption plus investment. So in a closed system, savings is equal to investment. But of course, the world is a closed system, but individual countries aren't, and so they're open systems within the global economy. And there, if there's a mismatch between savings and investment, then they are either exporters or importers of capital. And because the balance of payments is an accounting identity, it must balance to zero. If there is a capital account surplus, there must be a current account deficit. 
the basic rule is the current account surplus means that you have an excess of savings over investment. You save more than you invest. So you export the excess savings and you run a current account surplus. And of course, if you run a deficit, that means investment exceeds savings. Okay. I want to actually get even more basic than that, though. So to summarize what you just said, a country's production minus its consumption equals its savings. And I think that part is intuitive enough. Uh, If the businesses in a given country make, let's say, 100 basketballs and each basketball costs $1, uh, but that country's own people only buy 80 basketballs and then sell the other 20 basketballs abroad, then that country has a savings of $20, right? I think that makes sense. And a country's savings minus investment is the current account surplus. So let's say that same country's businesses had instead made 95 basketballs, uh, again, each one sold for a dollar. Uh, But these businesses also invested $5 in, like, factory equipment or buildings or whatever to make basketballs for next year. So its overall production was the same, $100, just as in the first example. And again, its own citizens had bought only 80 basketballs. Well, in this case, the country's savings is, again, $20 because the country had overall production of $100 and its people only consumed or bought $80 worth of basketballs. But in this example, uh, remember that its businesses invested $5. And so the $20 in savings minus the $5 invested leaves you with a current account surplus of $15, which you'll also notice is also the difference between the value of the basketballs that were made in the country, which was $95, and the value of the basketballs it sold inside the country. So... That's a very simple example, stripped of a lot of complicating details, obviously. But again, the point is that if a country makes more than it consumes and invests, it has to do something with those extra goods and services that it makes. And typically, uh, what it does is it sells them abroad. In exchange for that, it accepts money, and it uses that money to buy either foreign financial assets like government bonds, or in some cases, uh, real assets like Uh, foreign real estate or a foreign business or whatever. Uh, And again, it does that because it has sold more than its own people have consumed or invested. Exactly right. There's never a net inflow or net outflow of dollars into the U.S. or of euros into Europe or renminbi into China. It always balances to exactly zero. And that's what drives that process. Okay, uh, now that we have those mechanisms in place, uh, let's make it a little bit more concrete or make it concrete again. Uh, Let's take an example of an economy this time that primarily makes basketballs and shovels so we can have like an investment category. Um, And it is running a current account surplus. Uh, How would that work? If it's running a current account surplus, that means... Let's assume basketballs are 100% consumption uh, and shovels are investment. If it's running a current account surplus, that means the total amount of shovels and basketballs that it uses in the form of consumption or investment is less than what it produces. Let's assume it produces $100 of both, um, $60 of basketballs and $40 worth of shovels. What would happen in that case is that Americans would consume $60 of basketballs, 
but they might only invest $30 of shovels. So now they've got 10 extra dollars of shovels they have to do something with, and that they either export in an open economy, or they have to stop producing shovels and they have to fire workers that make shovels. Those are the only options. And in an open society, in a, in a globalized economy, they'll export those shovels. So exports those shovels, and they are paid for those shovels in a foreign currency of whoever they sell it to, right? And then what is it They're paid for those shovels in dollars, but they lent the dollars to the foreigners. So the money was exported. The excess American savings of $10 was exported to the foreigners who used those $10 to buy shovels. Okay, explain the mechanism by which they exported the $10. What ends up happening is you export the shovel, your foreign client now has to pay you $10. Mm-hmm. Your foreign client isn't going to be able to pay you until he sells the shovels. So he goes to his bank. And his bank contacts your bank. The, uh, his bank will then effectively had borrowed $10 from your bank uh, with the agreement that when the shovels are sold, the importer will pay the equivalent of $10, let's say in euros, to his bank. And his bank would then buy the dollars and repay the loan. So an American bank would have had to lend the European $10 in order to buy the shovels. Got it. Okay. This is a mythical world in which America is running a current account surplus. We're unlikely to see that for some time. Uh, But the mechanism is what matters here. Uh, Okay. Here's what I want to follow that example with. Types of trade interventions and specifically ways that countries can manipulate their current accounts, right? And in this case, since we're talking about current account surpluses, how they can drive up the balance to create a current account surplus. Now, there are obvious examples here that we don't have to get too much into, like tariffs and non-tariff barriers, import quotas or subsidies to specific sectors. There are some non-obvious ones that you also talk about. I want to start with currency manipulation because it sounds intuitively clear how that might work. But actually, it works in ways that are not necessarily as obvious as people think. Tell us about that. That's right. Most people think that if you artificially lower the value of your currency, you run a trade surplus because your goods are now cheaper in the international markets and foreign goods are more expensive. That's not really how it works. The way it works is if you depreciate your currency, all households are net importers, so you have reduced the, the real value of disposable income relative to GDP. So the household share of GDP goes down. And as the household share of GDP goes down, the consumption share typically goes down. And savings is simply GDP minus consumption. So if the consumption share goes down, the saving share goes up. And if there's been no change in investment, then savings has risen relative to investment. So let's say you started with balanced trade, then you depreciated the currency. By doing so, you forced up the savings rate. And because savings now exceeds investment, you export your net savings and you run a current account or trade surplus. The reason I started with currency manipulation is also because we've often heard the argument from either economists or economic observers that even though China, for instance, has appreciated the value of the renminbi in the last decade or so, the trade balance hasn't changed as much as you might have thought. And so a lot of people have concluded, therefore, that the exchange rate 
simply doesn't matter. What you said is that that's not right. It's just that it's not the only thing exactly. that matters. Exactly. From July 2005, the currency, the renminbi has appreciated quite a lot. But the trade surplus has grown instead of shrink, which is what a, a lot of people would have expected. This is the same thing that happened, by the way, in Japan after the Plaza Accords. Both the Japanese yen and the Deutsche Mark went up. They were forced to appreciate. And the Japanese current account surplus grew. It didn't shrink. Germany shrank. And the point there is uh, it's not true that the currency doesn't matter. The currency matters a great deal, but it's not the only thing that matters. So to go through the Chinese or the Japanese case, because they both did the same thing, the currency appreciated. That increased the real value of household income of disposable household income because it lowered the costs of foreign imports. That caused the savings rate in China or in Japan to go down because consumption grew as a share of GDP, so by definition, savings contracted. If that had been the end of the story, then we would have seen a decline in both countries' current account surpluses, and that's in fact what happened in Germany. But both Japan and China did something else. They expanded credit at very low, in the case of China, at negative real interest rates. Why does that matter? Because when you have negative real interest rates, you're basically transferring wealth from net savers, and the net savers in a country like China, where uh, depositors leave, uh, households put most of the money in the bank, and the bank does all the lending, net savers are the household sector. So you transferred money from households to borrowers, which in China were producers of GDP. So that counter affected the the change in the value of the currency. It reduced the household share of GDP by more than the appreciation increased the household share of GDP. So the net result was that the savings rate actually went up, not down, in both countries. Mm -hmm. And so their current account surpluses went up, not down. Right. Let me take uh, the next two. Um, Financial repression... And this usually takes the shape of mandatory low interest rates for household savings. So, for instance, if you cap, if you put a maximum cap on the interest rate that you can get for your deposits at the bank, that would be uh, financial repression. Uh, And then the other one is wage growth repression. You can take those in either order. Well, financial repression was what I discussed last time, which is the transfer of wealth from households to uh, producers of GDP. Slow wage growth has exactly the same impact. If wages grow more slowly than productivity or more slowly than GDP, that means uh, uh, households as workers are getting a smaller share of what they produce. So the household share of GDP once again is contracting. And as the household share of GDP contracts, the consumption share contracts, the savings share goes up. So if wages lag GDP growth, there's a tendency to force up the savings rate and to run a trade surplus or a current account surplus. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of people say that's intuitive because as you lower wages, you make your goods cheaper in the international markets. And it's true. Both of those statements are true. Okay. uh, And then I want to give you one final, actually unintuitive one uh, until you start thinking about it. But it's, it's an example that I think very few people bring up, which is environmental degradation and specifically the idea that if a country has very weak environmental standards, it's similar to a subsidy to the companies that operate in that country relative to the companies that work, you know, that operate abroad. Right. 
That's why it's so useful to think in these terms, because when you think in terms of the savings investment balance, it becomes much clearer. Environmental degradation is also a transfer of wealth from households to businesses. Why? Because if you can dump your chemicals in the river, that lowers your cost. However, it raises health care costs for the household sector, so they have to save more for future uh, health uh, purposes. So it's a straight transfer, and once again, you get an increase in the savings rate driven by a reduction in the household share of GDP. Uh, eminent domain works the same way. In China, if you want to build an airport, you just throw everybody off the land. Uh, that's another transfer of wealth from households to producers of airports. Right. Uh, and that transfer from one part of the economy to the other is sort of the the most fundamental part of what yes. we're discussing here, I think. There's something uh, interesting included in a paper that you sent me recently which is that a lot of people frequently like to say that a country's current account, whether it runs a deficit or a surplus, is the result of that, that country's savings or investment decisions. But that's only true as a kind of tautology, because actually savings and investment changes because of these other, uh, what you might call exogenous right. decisions or shocks, not because uh, a country collectively up and decides to save more money. Right. That's, uh, uh, again, one of the big problems in this discussion is that we tend to think of savings as something that households do, and households are one of three groups that save, and we tend to think of changes as saving as reflecting changes in thriftiness or, or, or all that stuff, prudence, et cetera. The other two groups, by the way, in addition to households are Governments the corporate sector and, and the government. Yeah, Exactly. So if you look, for example, at Germany, Germany was running current account deficits in the 1990s, quite large. And then after the labor reforms of 2003, 2004, they started running huge current account surpluses, the largest in the world. Many people said that was because German households, seeing an uncertain world, became thriftier, more prudent, etc. But if you look at the numbers, that's not the case. Their household savings rate was unchanged. What happened was that the labor reforms, which is usually a euphemism for reducing wages, caused, and you can see it clearly in the numbers, the household share of German GDP contracted. And because the household share contracted, consumption contracted, and savings went up. Who was responsible for the higher savings? German corporates, because their profitability went up as wages went down. So it was business savings that went up, and business savings went up simply because wages went down. Okay, so now that we understand the technical aspects of how a country's current account surplus uh, actually operates, let's talk about some of the reasons why countries do this deliberately, when they do it deliberately, and not uh, as an accident or uh, because it was uh, responding to the way other countries function, right? So traditionally, there are three possibilities I'll give the first two, right? And then I'll let you explain the third one, which is, in fact, uh, what your dominant theory is, right? So the first possibility is mercantilism. Uh, traditionally, this just meant that a country wanted to have a lot of savings so that it had enough money to raise an army, to pay soldiers, to build equipment right. in case it had to go to war. More recently, mercantilism might be as a precautionary measure in order to potentially fight off a financial crisis that's caused by currency mismatches. So a country might want to have a lot of foreign currency in case its private sector starts to have serious problems because of a rapid depreciation in the domestic currency. Right. right? That's 
one possibility. A second possibility is known as the infant industry argument, which is when a country effectively wants to have a very strong manufacturing sector. And so effectively what it does is it transfers resources, as you've just discussed, from the household sector to the manufacturing sector so that it can build the technological capacity to compete with other countries. And also because it tends to work well as a rapid employment mechanism. It lets you hire a lot of people really fast, right? That's the second argument. And I think there is quite a lot to that in some cases, right? But your argument is that actually the countries right now that have been running large current account surpluses, primarily Germany and China, are doing so because of the underconsumptionist theory, right? So uh, tell us what that is, please. Yeah, underconsumption is something that we've known about for a while. It really uh, began probably in the late 19th century, and uh, the British economist John Hobson and the American economist, less well-known, Charles Arthur Conant, uh, explained it extremely well. And the way Hobson explained it is because there was significant income inequality in England at the end of the 19th century, one of the impacts of income inequality is to reduce consumption. Why? Because if you transfer $100 from an ordinary household to a rich household, you get a a net reduction in consumption because rich people consume a much smaller share of their income. If you've got everything and you get additional money, you're probably not going to buy much more. So what does that mean? That means that you can find yourself in a position where you are producing far more than local households can afford to consume. And that's usually worsened, and we saw this clearly in Germany after 2003, that's worsened by a reduction in private sector investment. Because if households cannot consume everything that you're producing, then you're not going to invest. You're going to reduce your investment. So you get a reduction in consumption and a reduction in uh, investment. Now, what are the options there? There are two things you can do. If you were in a closed economy, there would be only one thing, and that is you would have to find some way of reducing the savings rate, and the typical way of doing that is firing workers. So you produce more than can be consumed. That's not sustainable. At some point, you fire workers, and the savings rate goes down. So you have a new equilibrium, but at a much lower GDP. In a, in a globalized world, you have an alternative, and that is you can export the excess production. And that's typically what happens. That's what happened in Germany. That's what happened in China. In other words, because of problems with the distribution of income, partly a result of income inequality, but also because of policies that have increased the government share in China or the business share in Germany, um, those have reduced the consumption share of GDP. And in that case, you're running current account surpluses because the alternative is to fire workers, which, of course, they don't want to do. Right. Okay. Now, this is where I want to transition into talking about the impact of these deliberate policy decisions of current account surplus countries on their corresponding current account deficit countries, right? right? And how it affects them. Let me just remind what I said, because this is the key point. When you run large current account surpluses, it's not because households have become prudent, it is almost always because of distortions in the distribution of income. It's not a cultural thing, in other words. Never. It's not a morality play. Exactly. Right. And to, to sort of recap a bit of what you just said also, for the household sector, 
it tends to pressure consumption down when a country right. runs a current account surplus, okay? Obviously, puts upward pressure on the country's overall savings, okay? On investment, the pressures can be a little bit tricky, but typically it raises the pressure for investment on the corporate sector because it's had resources transferred to it uh, and because it has the ability to borrow a lot of money and therefore to invest a lot of money, which it then can make goods that it will sell abroad in particular, especially in the cases where where the currency is depressed, for instance. That's right. right. Now, let's talk about what happens to current account deficit countries when they have, let's say, a neutral policy stance and these other countries are deliberately running up their current account surpluses, I would imagine that the mechanism works in exactly the opposite way. Yes. Let's talk about two states of the world. One state which characterized really uh, the middle of the 19th century is when you have a, uh, a, a big difference between desired investment and actual investment. And there, the the main player was the United States. It was a rapidly growing economy. It had huge investment needs, and it had a very low savings rate. So because of its low savings rate, American investment was constrained by the low savings rate plus whatever capital it could import from England or or any other uh, capital exporting country in Europe, mostly England and the Netherlands. Um, In that case... The world had a a, a trade imbalance that was positive for growth because excess British savings were exported to the U.S. And because the investment needs of the U.S. were much greater than the actual investment in the U.S. because of lack of domestic savings, that import of savings caused American investment to go up. So the U.S. grew more quickly and uh, the British grew more quickly. Great. But what happens when you are in a world in which there is no longer a significant uh, uh, excess of desired investment over uh, actual investment? And that was basically the world of the end of the 19th century. Uh, For most of economic history, we've operated under a, a regime of savings scarcity. For the first time, there was not a problem of savings scarcity. And the result is that if, and this is the case today, if, uh, it won't, it's not England, but if Germany exports savings to the U.S., remember that if Germany is running a current account surplus, that means savings is greater than investment, and it is exporting that excess savings, which, which funds the German trade surplus or current account surplus, goes to the U.S. Now, because the U.S. has completely open capital markets, If there are excess savings in Germany or anywhere else and you don't have a place to put them, you put them in the U.S. Now, there are many countries that need investment, uh, developing countries, but they have very low credibility. So we don't put money there. So a lot of that ends up in the U.S. So the U.S. runs automatically a capital account surplus, not because of anything that happens in the U.S., but simply because there is excess savings in Germany and very open and liquid capital markets, so the money goes to the U.S. If the U.S. runs a capital account surplus, it must run a current account deficit. Now, that means that in the U.S., investment must be greater than savings. So let's pretend that the U.S. has balanced trade, investment is equal to savings, and then we shift to a period in which German money flows into the U.S., 
and the U.S. now runs a current account deficit and a capital account surplus. By definition, that means American investment is higher than American savings, right? Uh, the way most economists think, and it made sense 150 years ago in a regime of uh, saving scarcity, is that as foreign savings enter the U.S., American investment goes up. Because the implicit assumption is that America suffers from a savings scarcity. Uh, but as soon as you say that, most economists know it's not true. There, uh, American companies that want to invest have unlimited access to cheap savings. In fact, American corporations are sitting on huge piles of cash, which they refuse to invest. What does that mean? That means that desired investment in the U.S. is equal to actual investment. What, uh, the, what the private sector wants to do, it can do in terms of investment. So when foreign money comes into the U.S., American investment does not go up. It didn't need that foreign money. It has unlimited access to cheap savings. So you still need that gap between uh, uh, investment and savings. So if investment doesn't go up, by definition, savings went down. A lot of people are really shocked by that. We all know that the U.S. has a low savings rate because Americans are spendthrift. Not true. If the investment rate doesn't go up, the savings rate must go down, and there are several mechanisms that force it to go down. One way is it could strengthen the U.S. dollar. And remember we discussed earlier that as the currency strengthens, that reduces savings and it increases uh, consumption because it increases the household share of GDP. But there are other things that could happen. One thing that could happen, which we're most worried about, is that because we are importing foreign goods that used to be produced in the U.S., you have to fire the American workers. Remember, firing workers reduces the savings rate because when you work, you consume out of your income. When you're fired, you still consume, but your income is now zero. So you have a negative savings rate. What else could happen? Well, when tons of money pour into your country, and this is very typical of peripheral Europe, the banks have to respond. And the way they respond is by lowering credit standards. Now, if you assume that in the U.S. or in any country in the world, you have households with a wide range of risk appetites, you have prudent households, you have imprudent households, you have optimists, you have pessimists, if you lower the lending standards, it is an iron law that you are going to see more borrowing from households that are more willing to take on debt, whether they're optimists or just foolish, who knows. But that's what causes the savings rate to go down. By lowering credit standards, you increase household borrowing, which is negative savings. Other things could happen. As money comes into the country, and we see this over and over again, you typically get real estate booms and stock market booms. That's when you have the so-called wealth effect. As the stock market goes up, as real estate prices go up, households feel richer. And so when you feel richer, you tend to save less for your retirement, so you increase your consumption, you reduce your savings. These are all fairly mechanistic uh, uh, processes that occur when you run a capital account surplus and your investment doesn't go up. One way or the other, savings must go down, and it's usually in a bad way. Although there is one other option which uh, advanced economies chose not to pursue. In order to make up for that arithmetic gap, that necessary arithmetic gap between investment and savings, if private sector investment didn't go up and you don't want household savings to plummet, 
the government could raise its investment rate. And by the way, the signals were all there with long-term interest rates being held down extremely low by something called the the savings glut, which we can get into, right? right? The signals were all there that the government should have been investing in things that would have raised the productivity potential of the economy. It chose not to, maybe because it misread the signs or because there's a kind of stigma against uh, running large fiscal deficits. But in any case, it didn't do that, right? right. Not enough to raise interest rates back to having a sort of a healthy-looking yield curve. And by choosing not to do that, the gap ended up being accounted for by plummeting savings. Exactly right. You're absolutely right. Now, we've had a long debate in American history. We've had really two debates about this issue. One is, should the government be involved in investing? And then the second debate is, if the government is involved in investing, should it be the federal government or the state government? These are really old debates in American history. And my personal prejudice is that the government does have a role to play in investing in needed infrastructure. But I want to keep this discussion politics-free in that sense. Let's make no assumptions about whether it's right for the government to invest or not. The point is that if the government responds to a capital account surplus by increasing investment, then you won't have the problem of a reduction in savings through unemployment or through debt. The question, though, is should the, uh, the investment program of the U.S. government be driven by the inability of foreigners to uh, consume everything they produce. In other words, should we invest because we're running capital account surpluses, or should we invest because it makes sense? And in the U.S., the decision about uh, uh, government spending is, is independent of the capital flows. We don't spend, we don't invest because money's coming in. Now, what I would argue here is if you believe that there ever is a time for uh, the government, whether at the state level or the federal level, to invest in infrastructure, presumably you want to do it at a time when global demand is weak and when capital is being given away almost for free. And those are the conditions today. So there's a very strong argument, uh, if you believe there is a role for government investment, there's a very strong argument for the government doing it now. Mm -hmm. Matt Klein. Welcome back to the conversation, my friend. Thanks for letting me back in. (laughs) Okay. uh, You heard everything that Michael just said. I want to now turn the conversation to uh, what's happening in Europe. You've written a lot about Germany, uh, I think often embracing the same or a similar framework uh, that Michael uses, right? Uh, Can you tell us sort of what the mechanisms are by which German deliberate policies have affected what's happened in the peripheral countries of Europe? Sure. So... To be clear, the deliberate policies weren't to deliberately create large current account deficits in the periphery, but they were deliberately, I think, in their perspective, to make Germany what they would call competitive in global markets. And uh, as far as I can tell from from reading about this and looking at, at the data and, and reading what, what German analysts have said, that the two big things they're reacting to are, on the one hand, how you deal with reunification after communist East Germany is brought into the Federal Republic uh, in you know the early 1990s, and at the same time, very much related to this, how you deal with the integration of Central and Eastern Europe, the other communist states, into uh, what you could think of as sort of a broader European supply chain while maintaining employment. And what they essentially decided to come up with is a system of we will help people get jobs, but they won't necessarily 
pay very well and they won't necessarily involve a lot of raises. But there is this social compact of will boost employment. And so what you see is that basically the total number of hours worked in Germany has been more or less flat for the past 20 plus years. But the number of people with a job has gone up by something like 15%. That's intimately tied with the labor market reforms that Michael was talking about. But it's also part of, it goes back a little bit further, I think, in, in sort of the mid-1990s as well. We have massive outsourcing of German auto parts and other manufacturing components to places like the Czech Republic and Slovakia and Hungary and Poland. And you move that supply chain out and essentially uh, it improves the competitiveness of companies based in Germany. But it also means obviously that people who are working in Germany have no leverage for getting pay rises. So they didn't. And at the same time, you have a whole lot of workers coming into the German economy initially at essentially excessively high wages but who weren't necessarily as productive as the people who were already in West Germany. So you have a long period of adjustment there. And so you deal with those twin forces, and you can understand you know, those are big challenges they had to deal with. They, they imposed a, a solidarity tax to help deal with the cost of adjustment and transfers to East Germany are still ongoing, still much poorer, you know, almost 30 years later. And that, I think, can lead to a lot of the phenomena that Michael was describing. It doesn't fully explain, however, I think a key point was that the profitability of the German corporate sector has actually gone up tremendously in the past 15, 20 years in a way that you haven't seen in other parts of Europe. And there's a really interesting analysis done, I believe, by the Bruegel think tank a few months ago that was essentially saying that the real difference between a place like Germany and Italy in terms of competitiveness had nothing to do with what we think of as labor costs, but it was, it was about the share of national income going to the corporate sector and to profits. Where in Italy, essentially, you had actually workers more or less were paid in line with productivity, or maybe a little more in productivity. France, they were paid in line in productivity. In Germany, they were paid way less in productivity. And that is the thing that they attributed as, as the source of these imbalances. Yeah, what's interesting about this, Michael, uh, is that it's a pretty stark example of your point that morality should not be brought into this, that this is not about Germans uh, preferring to save more and uh, Italians preferring or Spaniards preferring to save a lot less. These were decisions that were taken by the German government, in some cases for understandable reasons, but that over time their effects ended up accumulating both inside of Germany, but uh, crucially from the standpoint of the last half decade, other countries in Europe as well. Yeah, in a way, it's it's um, it's hard to know what else Germany might have done because Germany did have a problem after unification. The consensus is that they unified at an excessively high exchange rate, which caused the uh, labor costs of Eastern, of low productivity Eastern Germans to be too high. So they had to make an adjustment. Now, there's two ways you can become competitive in the international markets. The high road is to invest in productivity increases. And the low road is to reduce wages or to reduce the value of your currency, which is the same thing. Clearly, Germany should have done the former. But there's an argument to be made that in a globalized world, it is very difficult to improve productivity because much of the benefits of the greater demand bleed abroad. It's very difficult to raise wages because the benefits bleed abroad. So what Germany did was effectively lower wages through the Hartz reforms. Now, everyone, I think, was surprised by how powerfully effective that was. And I would argue the reason it was so effective was probably because of the creation of the euro. Because normally what should have happened is that the Deutschmark should have strengthened and the currencies of the rest of Europe should have weakened, partially to offset the reduction in, uh, in German wages. 
But thanks to the euro, that couldn't happen. And countries that entered the euro with higher inflation compared to Germany, which had no inflation, ended up seeing a real appreciation in their currency rather than a real depreciation, which would have been the normal result. So the the German wage policies had enormous traction. And there's one other thing that we should consider, and that is what happened to all of that excess German savings? Why did, if, if, if the Spanish and the Italians weren't being spendthrift, why did they take it all and consume it? Well, once again, inflation differentials matter because this German savings was offered to German companies and German households at more or less the same interest rates as it was offered in the rest of Europe as interest rates converged. But since peripheral Europe entered the euro with much higher inflation and it continued, that meant that that capital had a negative real cost in peripheral Europe and a very high positive real cost in Germany. So not surprisingly, the capital flew into the rest of Europe. Uh, And Matt, uh, this is where I want to transition to talking about the example of Spain. And there's a reason I'm choosing Spain instead of Greece. In the case of Greece... Everything tends to get a little bit confused in part because the government really did lie about what was going on there for many, many years, right? And because Greece has legitimate structural problems in addition to these imbalances that Michael's talking about. Spain, you can't say that about them, right? And as you've written, before the crisis, Spain ran by all accounts what would be considered a, and I'm putting in air quotes, responsible macroeconomic policy, right? Give us the example of what happened in Spain uh, and tell us, uh, well, essentially what's, what's been happening since. Yeah, I think Spain is a, is a fantastic example because when you look at the debates that have happened since the crisis and people who talk about how the euro isn't really the issue because there are a lot of things that countries can do even within the framework of a single currency. You look at the policies they suggest. They're all things that Spain actually did at the time. They say, oh, if you have too much private capital inflows from abroad, you need to have the government offset that with budget surpluses. Well, the Spanish government did do that. They're running surpluses on the order of 3% of GDP on the eve of the crisis. The government debt to GDP, I think, fell by something like 40 percentage points during the boom years. They say, oh, you need to offset it with tighter regulation. You have to have higher capital requirements for banks. Spain, again, they innovated on that front. You could argue they could have done more, but they had this idea of the counter-cyclical provisioning, which is basically nowadays that people talk about you know, macro-prudential capital requirements for banks, where you essentially say banks should be relatively less uh, indebted uh, when asset prices are going up. Spain innovated on that front. They were doing that. Clearly, it wasn't enough. But then it leads to the question of if they were already doing those two key things people saying they should have been doing more so at the time than you know what any other country was doing you know what what are the kinds of things that would have been necessary to actually offset this i don't know maybe you know sometimes there are people there are economists who do models and they say oh in theory you should have a 10% budget surplus or something that's not something that you see as being realistic i mean the only countries that do that are generally oil exporters doesn't uh, a lot of this just have to do with the constraints uh, that are imposed by these various european agreements I mean, since the crisis, they and other countries are very limited in terms of the size of the budget deficits they can run. Right. Those 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 <laughs> limits are not symmetrical. So in theory, they could run you know as a big a surplus as they wanted, which is a, a separate problem. But the fascinating thing is they were the government was doing, I think, within the limits of what we'd consider reasonable, uh, what it could to offset it. But the flows of private capital were just enormous. And so what happened was that basically in the 1990s, the Spanish current account balance 
it was I think like negative one percent of GDP. So it was a slight deficit, but it wasn't crazy. Spain was growing faster than other European countries. They they probably did have legitimate investment needs. So it's not it's not you know particularly unreasonable. That grew as you get closer to the creation of the euro. Again, it's not necessarily unreasonable. The population was growing a lot. You had millions of people coming in from Latin America for jobs. There was a housing boom that some of it was you know that construction was probably legitimate because again you had millions of people coming into the country. However, then it gets pretty wild as you get into the mid to late 2000s. On the eve of the crisis, I think their their current account balance was something on the order of negative 10% of GDP, which is almost without precedent in terms of uh, a country, a developed economy that the invest the, the investment that they're doing again, you get you start getting these, you know, beautiful airports that are in the middle of nowhere. Then, you know, the FT has written some great stories about this and you know they're being sold for I think like a euro now because no one wants to run them. So that I mean that's this is just clearly an excess of 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 savings that were being available to invest in just in anything. And it wasn't necessarily, I mean, you could argue that there was some levels of mismanagement in some of the local regional banks or whatever, but it wasn't fundamentally uh, a case of, you know, nefarious local governments and, and, and businesses abusing the rules. It was a function of the fact that there was just this inflow of capital. And if you have that much money coming in, what are you supposed to do with it? When you look at the flows from uh, Germany to Spain, there are two possible explanations. One explanation is that capital was pushed from Germany to Spain. Why? Because of excess savings driven by income inequality and the inability to, uh, uh, to use it domestically for consumption or investment. The other explanation, which is the preferred explanation in many places, including among many of my friends in Spain, is to blame an explosion in just the siesta mentality. Everyone in Spain went out on, and had a big party, and because of this consumption boom, they forced Germany to uh, provide the capital to supply uh, this big consumption boom. The difficulty with those arguments are two things. If Germany or if money is being pushed from Germany into Spain, you would expect the way that would happen is through lower interest rates. And if it was being pulled, you would expect that through higher interest rates. Clearly, interest rates went down. But there's also a timing problem because uh, the big capital exports began roughly after the Hartz reforms. And then we had a case in which Spain, Italy, Portugal, Greece, France, and several other countries all simultaneously decided to go on a party. And it's possible. It's just very hard to believe that that's the way it happened. It would be an amazing coincidence. So to me, it's much easier to think of money being pushed into these countries and the amounts were huge, 20 to 30% of GDP in a short period of time. And I cannot find a single case in history of a country that received anywhere near that level of inflows, without, including Germany, without having uh, stock market bubbles, consumption booms, and crises. Michael, this brings up another issue, which is what can current account deficit countries do to defend themselves when some of their counterparts abroad start deliberately running current account surpluses. And in the case of Europe, this is complicated by the fact that they share a currency. Right. But let's say the example of uh, the U.S., the U.K., which have their own currency uh, and also run large deficits. Uh, what can they do the next time, or actually even in the present moment, with China and Germany still running very large surpluses? What do they do in order to have some kind of a healthy adjustment? If you listen to the Trump administration, and in fact, I think if you listen to a lot of traditional economists, the way you uh, fix 
the U.S. current account deficit problem is you look at the countries with whom uh, the U.S. is uh, is running large deficits. So that's China, Japan, Germany, and Mexico. Those are the big four. And you intervene directly in trade by changing relative prices, maybe through tariffs or whatever you like. That was an approach that made sense. Again, 150 years ago, when trade was done bilaterally and capital flows responded to trade, most capital flows in those days, something like 90%, was simply trade finance. Um, So in that case, what happened is that you had a trade imbalance driven by price differentials, and trading was mostly in finished goods, Um, and the capital imbalance was simply the financing of the trade imbalance. But that's clearly not the case today. Uh, Today, because of the collapse in transportation costs, most trade is in intermediate goods. So the U.S. has a, a bilateral deficit with Mexico, That could originate in Mexico, but it's just as likely to originate somewhere else. Uh, The way to find out is to look at the overall Mexican balance. But more importantly, remember uh, I said that if you run a capital account surplus, you must run a current account deficit. So the problem at the level of the U.S. is on the capital account, not on the current account. Let's say that the U.S. imposed tariffs on everybody. Would the U.S. current account deficit decline? Well, it depends on what happens to the capital account. And I would argue that if the U.S. were to impose tariffs, we would see more money coming into the U.S. rather than less because the assumption would be that you would see an increase in American production and so therefore the profitability of American investment would go up. If more money comes into the U.S., if the U.S. capital account surplus is bigger, then its current account deficit must be bigger. Now, I can't tell you, I can't predict exactly how that'll occur. It could occur in many, many different ways. But I can predict with absolute certainty that it must occur. If the capital account surplus rises, the current account deficit must rise. So if you really want to address the problem, if the problem is, if it originates on the capital side by the need of a world of excess savings, to invest that money someplace that is safe, deep, and liquid, then you have to intervene on the capital side. So can't really give you specifics because it depends on a whole bunch of legal structures, but they're not covered under WTO. But if the U.S. were, were to intervene in the ability of foreigners to dump excess savings in the U.S., the U.S. current account deficit would automatically decline. You know, just to follow up on this question, because I'm, I'm struck by the difference between your estimate of the impact of, of a sort of broad tariff versus a currency suppression, because it sounds like, I mean, obviously there are a lot of different effects you know, that go in both directions, but one impact I would think of higher tariffs across the board is that as with a currency depreciation, it hits household real incomes. And so from that perspective, it would boost the savings rate in the, sort of the same extent that what you see in China. Can you sort of give a sense of how you see those things offsetting or put another way why the cheaper exchange rate in China doesn't lead to an increase in investment that offsets the increase in savings? Right. Let's say the U.S. imposed tariffs across the board. And you're absolutely right. If you impose tariffs across the board, you raise the price of foreign goods. So you reduce the household income share of GDP because you reduce the uh, real disposable income of American households. So if you do that, shouldn't the savings rate go up? It depends. If investment goes up, the savings rate will go up investment will probably go up. Uh, Let's assume 
that more foreign money comes into the U.S. after it erects all of these uh, tariffs. You're in the funny position where the tariffs itself forced up the savings rate, but there are more inflows into the U.S., which means the gap between investment and savings is greater than ever. Uh, There's two ways you can explain that. One is because the tariffs are going to cause Americans to buy more goods, uh, American factories need to produce more, so there will be more investment in American factories, and that'll probably occur. It's hard to imagine it would occur to the to a significant extent if there was a significant increase in in, uh, in inflows, in which case some mechanism has to drive the savings rate down. And again, there are many mechanisms that can do so, but the most obvious mechanism is a raise in the value of the dollar, an increase in the value of the dollar. So the benefits generated by the tariff, or rather the effect of the tariffs on household income, is not simply the tariffs. It's the tariffs minus the strength in the dollar that's a result of increased inflows into the U.S. There are so many moving parts, it's hard to figure out exactly what would happen. But the point that I would make is that if capital inflows into the U.S. increase, the U.S. current account deficit must increase. And it could increase for good reasons, it could increase for bad reasons. And that is the end of part one, just part one of our chat with Michael Pettis. A reminder that part two will be coming out on Monday. But meanwhile, give us a call at 917-551-5012. That is country code plus one because we are based in the U.S. Email us at alphachat at ft.com. And at ft.com forward slash alphachat, you'll find show notes for this episode and for all other prior episodes. Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes, is where you can go and leave us a rating or a review. We really do appreciate those. We see all of them, and they're especially great because other people find the show through the reviews and ratings that you leave at Apple Podcasts. Finally, Alpha Chat's greatest surplus is easily the talent and mind of editor and producer Amy Keene. Thanks for everything, Amy, and thanks to our listeners. We'll see you here again next week on Monday for part two of our chat with Michael Pettis. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. The latest episode of The Next Five podcast is all about AI and the business travel sector. I speak to Tim LaBelle, head of product for SAP Concur Spend Solutions. We'll have so much data that our travel will be safer. Shelley Fletcher-Bryan, VP of Advito. AI can certainly contribute to more eco-friendly travel practices. And author and public speaker, Theo Lau. AI can help us predict when it will be a peak travel, more delays, cancelled flights. Listen to the full episode of The Next Five wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy.